Hello and welcome to the Big Ben History Podcast and our latest conversation with the men in the room when Margaret Thatcher told her cabinet she was resigning in November 1990. Sir Malcolm Rifkin was Margaret Thatcher's final Secretary of State for Scotland and his relationship with her was strained. He felt she forgot the constitutional powers she had there as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom inevitably ran up against the political constraints of low-level support for the Conservatives in Scotland. In her memoirs, she called him her biggest critic in the Cabinet. Still, he was moved, like his colleagues, when Margaret Thatcher told them her time was up. Well, the, the morning began as it would normally before a Cabinet meeting. We were all in the ante-room, uh, waiting for the summons to enter the Cabinet room. Uh, none of us, are, or very few of us, are entirely certain what she's about to say. And if I remember correctly, she actually came down the staircase. She'd been obviously upstairs in her own uh, part of the building and uh, went into the cabinet room and we all followed. Uh, before the cabinet business began, she began by saying she needed to make a statement and she began the statement. Within a few seconds, uh, she broke down and it wasn't for very long, perhaps five or, five or ten seconds, but she clearly had broken down. I think uh, James Mackay, the Lord Chancellor, passed her a glass of water uh, and she got her composure back very, very quickly and never showed any visible distress for the rest of the uh, meeting. Uh, there were tributes to her at that stage, one, I think, from the Lord Chancellor. I can't remember who the second one was from. Uh, and then we went into the main business of the cabinet, uh, which was a pretty normal cabinet meeting, except she was more reserved, more formal than usual. Uh, there were no great explosions because there was no reason to have any. And then uh, when we got to the end of the meeting, and um, someone, one of my colleagues uh, said, oh, Prime Minister, you, she was due to face Kinnock that afternoon. He put down a motion of no confidence, and that would normally have been a gala parliamentary occasion with fireworks on all sides. Uh, so someone said, oh, Prime Minister, you're likely to have a fairly easy run this afternoon because it will be known by then that you're stepping down. She said, an easy run, a relaxed afternoon. I don't want that. I want something that will get the adrenaline going. And by God, she did, because she made one of the best speeches of her career, as if she didn't have a care in the world, and tore Kinnock apart um, with cheers from her own back benches, half of whom had voted for her, um, but nevertheless did genuinely want to show their appreciation. Um, and then... Um, one of the most memorable moments, which is well known, Dennis Skinner, a very a maverick backbencher on the Labour side, shouted out, "Why, maybe you would now like to have become chairman of the European Central Bank uh, for your next job. And she stopped, and there was laughter in the chamber, and she stopped and looked at him with a flash in the eye and said, yes, that's a very good idea. I'll have to give some serious thought to that. You know, it was all pretty impressive stuff, given the tenseness of the occasion. Do you think the performance made people question the decision to, to get rid of no, her? not in the slightest. No, I mean, everybody knew that she was capable of making an excellent parliamentary speech, and she still had remarkable skills. But the reasons why, you see, I mean, the, the, the problem she was under, and I said this to her when I was you know, one of the cabinet ministers who saw her on a one-to-one -one basis uh, the day before, uh, she, she'd said to me, you know, as she had said to everyone, I subsequently discovered, I've won three elections. I've never lost a general election. Uh, why should I resign? 
And I said, well, there's no constitutional reason at all. I said, but the problem, Prime Minister, is that your political authority has been very severely damaged because it is now known to the public, to the country, to the world, that almost half your parliamentary colleagues either voted for Heseltine or abstained, uh, and therefore you did not have their support. And, you know, and I think the, the, the um, uh, comparison that was made was with uh, you know, a ship that is uh, hauled below the waterline. The ship on the surface looks as if everything is fine, but there's water pouring in underneath, which eventually will sink the ship. And uh, essentially, she'd been there for 10 years, 10 to 11, almost 11 years. Um, first six or seven were superb. And then, as often happens, people get bored with you, but also your own judgment becomes slightly less impressive. Um, and it's time for a change. Tony Blair had exactly the same experience uh, after almost exactly the same period of time even when the only alternative was Gordon Brown. The, the Labour Party all wanted rid of him. I was rereading her autobiography uh, yesterday, and, and she talked of your one-to-one -one meeting. She was actually relieved that you were quite nice to her. <laughs> no, she wasn't really, no, 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 not quite what she said. Well, maybe she did say that. But um, she'd asked me, uh, uh, if I do stand, will you support me? And I, I knew in advance that she would be likely to ask that. And I'd had to give some thought to what I would say. And I felt a sense, I mean, I, I had voted for her in the first round, and I didn't want her to go, you know, being thrown out by her party. I wanted her to choose to retire, as she eventually did, albeit under pressure. Uh, so I said, well, I can only give you one guarantee at the moment, Prime Minister, and that is I will never vote against you, which implied that I was going to abstain. Uh, and she said in her memoir, that was some modest comfort. <laughs> Uh, which was perfectly entitled to say. But it, it reflected my genuine feelings at the time, uh, that I, I felt, you know, if, if I'd been so hostile to her, uh, then I would have, I should have resigned some time earlier. And I'd stayed in her cabinet to the very end, and that was because three quarters of the time I thought she was superb. Uh, one quarter I found incredibly difficult. But that was primarily because of the job I was doing at the time. I was Secretary of State for Scotland, and she never understood Scotland, and we had some pretty difficult rows, difficult issues uh, that um, created a, a quite serious rift between us. She never understood Scotland because? No, she had a sort of um, marvellous concept. That as you know, She remembered that Adam Smith, whom she greatly admired as an economist, that he was a Scotsman from Kirkcaldy, as was Gordon Brown, and assumed that all Scotsmen were basically capitalist entrepreneurs, who believed in market economics. And, well, that was not true of all Scotsmen, certainly not as regards their voting habits, because the Labour Party was, at that time, by far the, the dominant party, and we were a relatively poor second. You, you mentioned um, much of it was to do with the people getting fed up with it, was to do with the passage of time. Uh, but well, there was also a, Euro um, a European question. Forgive me interrupting, but it was also her personality. She became much more intolerant. Uh, she, instead of treating her colleagues as colleagues, as fellow members of the cabinet of considerable status, albeit below her, uh, she would be derisory in front of other people, uh, particularly, of course, with Geoffrey Howe. That became very well known. I was present at the cabinet meeting when he, as deputy prime minister, she tore into him as if he was an errant schoolboy. And uh, uh, that was a disgrace. And she would never have done that in the earlier years. Uh 
Well, the, her personality was an issue. Time was an issue. What about policies um, uh, and Europe? Was was Europe a big problem with her party by the end? Uh, yes, it was. Not because she was Eurosceptic. Um, even then, probably the bulk of the party were Eurosceptic. Very few people, including myself, did not want uh, wanted us into the single currency, for example. Uh, that that was not an issue, um, which uh, was was creating internal divisions. Um, but it was the language she used. It was aggressive. It was hostile. Uh, in in an organization which was basically all of democratic countries, uh, all trying to work closely together. And that, that upset uh, people. And also on the poll tax. And I don't criticize her. I was on her side of the argument on the poll tax. I was Secretary of State for Scotland, um, responsible for it north of the border. But, you know, that did turn out to be a considerable political miscalculation, which did her very serious damage. What would she like to work for? Well, if you were a member of her staff, she was marvellous. Her staff adored her. She never bullied them or shouted at them or really was rude to them or anything of that kind. Uh, the same could not be said of her relationship with her colleagues unless she respected them. Quite an important distinction. She was asked once in a television interview. I think she was still leader of the party at the time. I'm not 100% certain, but I think she was. She was asked, why do, why, why do you... Why are you so rude to your colleagues in the cabinet? And then she thought for a moment and then said, there are two reasons. Uh, first of all, I'm a woman in a man's world. If I don't dominate them, they'll dominate me, which in those days was more correct than it would have been today. Uh, and secondly, I'm testing them. I want to know how strongly they feel when they are disagreeing with me. And I also want to know how well informed they are. And so if, you know, if a colleague stood up to her, but had good reasons to do so, or what seemed like good reasons, you could shut her up and sometimes change her mind. And uh, I did, can't be certain what her view was of me, but you know, she in her memoirs, part of what she says is complimentary, part of it is much less complimentary. Um, but she respected or appeared to take the view uh, that I was of a certain caliber and, was, and the very fact that I stood up to her and had these arguments with her, which were not emotional arguments, uh, they were reasoned arguments as to why what she was proposing to do or how to, she wanted to do it were, in my view, either premature or sometimes incorrect. And um, she respected people who were prepared to take that position, but also, if I'm honest, uh, of course, if she decided they were hopeless, that raised the question of why she'd appointed them in the first place. And she didn't like to acknowledge that her original judgment might have been wrong. So there were probably a number of reasons why people survived. But to be fair to her, she never departed from the view that a cabinet must not just consist of people who are all of exactly the same persuasion as the prime minister. Uh, so people like uh, Ken Clark and Chris Patton and Walden Maldegrave, myself, who could all be considered to be wets, by her standards, uh, she appointed us to her cabinet and kept us in her cabinet, uh, not necessarily in economic departments, but in departments where she judged we couldn't do too much mischief, um, because uh, she really recognized that parties are coalitions. That's one of the things that worries me about Boris Johnson, is that after having won the Brexit debate, and we've left the European Union, uh, he still seems to make appointments to his cabinet, largely based on whether they were Brexit Brexiteers or not. A lot of people have mentioned that her campaign for re-election in the first ballot was half-hearted and inept. Was Is that an observation you share? 
Well, she had a, 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 I know what people mean, and it's, it's not an, an unfair comment because that's certainly how it came across. I think she assumed that she was going to win that ballot. And at the end of the day, she would get more votes than Heseltine, and therefore that would be okay. And she did get more votes than Heseltine, although it just fell short of the required number to avoid a second ballot. Um, but also, uh, she had a huge workload, and she was determined not to put on uh, put on one side all the things she should be doing as prime minister in order to be uh, canvassing her colleagues. So, for example, the night of the ballot being announced, as is well remembered, she was in Paris, a uh, meeting of heads of government of all the NATO countries, I think it was, um, uh, a very important dinner at Versailles and so forth. Uh, and so that day of the ballot itself, instead of being in the House of Commons, trying to get some votes at the last moment from people who might not otherwise have voted for her, uh, she was doing her duty as prime minister, and uh, yeah, very much to her credit. She also wasn't terribly good on some of the people who were helping. I mean, it's well known Peter Morrison, who was her parliamentary private secretary, uh, was not a good choice of someone to be a senior figure in the in the, in the re-election campaign. He didn't have these skills. I don't criticize him. He never claimed to have these skills. He did his best, uh, but that wasn't necessarily very impressive. Uh, do you think she could have been Kinnock in 92? Um, we'll never know. Uh, of course, it was by no means obvious that John Major was going to uh, win that particular uh, election, and Kinnock lost it to some degree rather than John Major winning it. Uh, one remembers uh, his uh, rather uh, grandiose rhetoric at his public rally, which went down very badly with the general public uh, and so forth. Uh, would she have won it? I, I suspect it would have been very, very close. Uh, certainly John Major, people forgot in later years, in the first two or three years he was prime minister, he was extremely popular, partly because he wasn't Margaret Thatcher. Uh, and he commanded, I mean, for example, in Scotland, uh, where the poll tax had been obviously very unpopular, uh, we actually ended up in that election winning one more seat than we'd had before. We didn't lose any, and we, we gained one, which doubt if Margaret Thatcher would have been able to do. I can't help but ask you, as a, as a former Scottish secretary and a Scot, to play the long view. Um, uh, do you see a connection between the sort of split between Thatcher's England and Scotland that uh, happened in the 80s and 90s? and the relationship or the, the, the perilous state of the union as we speak? No, well, I know what you're getting at, and she was not terribly popular in Scotland, to put it mildly, uh, not for the same reasons as Boris Johnson. Uh, in Thatcher's case, uh, which I don't think is the case with Boris at this moment in time, the people in Scotland greatly respected Margaret Thatcher. They knew she was a, a natural leader and you know, a pretty competent prime minister. But first of all, she was a woman. Uh, secondly, she was a a, a bossy woman, and thirdly, she was a bossy English woman. And, uh, you know, that sort of just got up people's noses. So there was partly a personal thing there. But no, I think the main reasons for the uh, swing towards nationalism uh, was something that was happening really all over Europe, you know. I mean, we, we think of Catalonia, but also in Belgium, the Flemings and the Walloons, touch and go with the Belgium all hang together. Uh, and you've had uh, similar um, uh, pressures in other other countries, so and Wales as well, not just in Scotland. Um, so you had a growth of nationalism, uh, exacerbated by the controversy over whether Scotland should have an assembly or a parliament, uh, which was never remotely on the cards 
while Thatcher was prime minister. Tony Blair eventually brought that in. Uh, but you, if you recall, what happened was uh, the Labour Party got no thanks for having created the Scottish Parliament. Within a few years, uh, it, it, it disappeared off the map. Uh, the party that had dominated Scottish politics for 50 years uh, ended up third way behind the Tories and uh, with the Nationalists triumphant. So it's difficult to say if, if only Margaret Thatcher wasn't there or had been different, and nationalism wouldn't have prevailed. It didn't seem to help the Labour Party when they actually supported devolution throughout these years and actually created the Scottish Parliament as one of their first priorities after '97. And, and finally, uh, we've touched on Scottish independence. We've, we've got to talk about Brexit in Europe. Um, it, it's interesting, when I speak to her former cabinet colleagues, Remainers tend to say that she would have been one of them. Brexiteers say she would, of course, been one of them. Uh, where, where do you stand? Do you think she, she would have yeah, voted Remain or Leave? That's a very, very good question. I was, Europe, I was her Europe minister under Geoffrey Howe. I, when I was minister of state at the Foreign Office between 83 and 86, I was Minister for Europe and therefore had to work very closely with her in Europe policy. Um, uh, my Well, let me just make two points in answer to your question. Uh, the person who can best judge is Charles Paul, who for many years was her political uh, secretary. Not political secretary, but he was a foreign policy uh, secretary dealing with all foreign European and other issues. And he's still very articulate. And when asked that question, he expressed the view that he thought, which was correct, that um, Margaret Thatcher uh, was never either expecting or trying to demand that we left the European Union. Uh, and uh, to his, in his judgment, uh, she would have been a Remainer, uh, albeit with serious reservations. I'm not quite so certain of that because, of course, what has happened is that the European Union has gone for more and more integration since Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, since uh, she indeed was alive. Um, so the uh, creation of the single currency uh, and the various other steps, occasional demands for European armies and, and all sorts of things of that kind, um, uh, the growth of Euroscepticism in both the Conservative Party and in the United Kingdom has been much, much greater in the last five years than it was uh, in her time. And if that, if public opinion was moving increasingly towards seriously considering the option of leaving, and then when the referendum came, having an opportunity to turn that into practice, I am far from persuaded that she would not have been part of that. She might not have been very articulate about it. She might not have been one of the leading uh, people campaigning for it, because she would have realized that there was a downside as well. A lot of damage would be done to many, many British interests. And although she was a conviction politician, she was also pretty pragmatic when it came to most of these issues. So I, I don't think it would have been an open and shut case that she would have been a, a, a Brexiteer. And, and I perhaps should defer to Charles Paul, who knew her much better than I did. did. Um, but I still have a, a serious belief that she quite probably would have, in the secrecy of the ballot box, voted to leave, not to stay. You've been listening to Sir Malcolm Rifkin reminisce about the Cabinet meeting when Margaret Thatcher resigned in November 1990. 
Look for the Big Ben History Podcast on iTunes, Spotify and other major podcast providers to listen to interviews with the other men in the room when it happened. The music is Packabell's Canon in D Major, arranged by Kevin MacLeod. I'm Ben Munro-Davis. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>